So I am really happy to be up here, uh, not down there, because if I'm down there, you th wouldn't know I'm standing up. So <laughs> it's, it's good I'm up here. And when we were at Catalyst, one of the, the brothers said, God is the God of the big and the small. And I said, every time I stand next to Simon, I'm so grateful because... <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, it is really a joy to be with you folks. We felt uh, warmly welcomed. We feel like we're on one heart and one mind with you. And we're, we're going to talk today about reflections. It's all about light. And the reason I wanted to talk about light is because Jesus set the example of using things that are all around us all the time to point to principles that are of the kingdom and are eternal but he used the stuff that's all around us so we remember it. There are things that are very simple yet very profound that release tremendous power. So that's what we're going to do today, reflections on light. And there's a little bit of a play on words there. You know we're talking about light, so it's reflection. We're talking about my reflections on light. A little bit of play of words on there, so I don't know if you get it, but oh well. That's at least uh, what I was trying to do. So the, the first question that we need to ask is who is the light of the world? And I was hoping that the slide would come up with just the question, and then someone would say, Jesus! And they would be right. And then I'd ask the question again, and I'd hold up this sign right here that says, We are! Because both are true. Jesus said he was the light of the world. Then he turned around and said, You are the light of the world. Later on in the book of John, he said, As the Father sent me, I am sending you. So the idea that he is the light of the world sets out a standard it sets out a direction. It sets out principle that he's saying, now, now that you have the idea, that's what you know needed to go and be. So when he looked in the eyes of people and said, you are the light of the world, what were they thinking? Fluorescent lights, stadium lights, stop lights. No, no. Two things that they could have imagined. One is the sun in the sky, and I don't think when he heard the words, you're the light of the world. They thought, yeah, that's me. Yeah, every day I'm just right there. I don't think so. It's either the sun in the sky or some kind of flame in your hand. I think they thought about that as a flame in their hand, a lamp, a torch, something like that. We're going to talk about five lessons from light today. And I'm first going to start out by asking you, on these five pairs up there, which one doesn't fit? It says up, down, it says left, right, it says light, dark, north, south, good, bad. Well, you're smart people, and we've been talking about light, so I'm sure you're saying, it's light, dark. That's the one that doesn't fit. The question is, why? Why doesn't that fit there? And this is principle number one. Light and darkness are not opposite equals. So it doesn't fit up there, because the rest of them would be, and it is not. What is the reality of light? Light comes in and the darkness flees. You come into a dark room and you hit the switch and what happens? The light doesn't struggle with the darkness. He was going to win. It's a tug of war. No. Light always wins. That's what God ordained. When Jesus said, I am the light of the world, John heard those words directly from him. And then later on when Jesus was gone, John sat down to write his gospel. And he said... Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And I have observed that the darkness could not understand or overpower the light. That's what it says in John chapter 1. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Everything that came into being came into being through Him. And the light shone into the darkness, and the darkness could not overpower it. This is John commenting on what he observed. Now you come into the light, you hit the switch, the darkness goes away. It's instantaneous, right? The, the, the power of the principle is not that light is always going to win in the instant. It wasn't that way in Jesus' day when he said, I'm the light of the world. But the prophetic word that is embedded within that is the end is certain. The light will win. And that's what you need to hang on to. Light and darkness are not opposite equals. Light always wins. Now, let's turn that coin over. Look at the other side. Light only wins when it's present. You hit the switch off, and what happens? The darkness floods back in. I wanted to tell you a story about a guy and an experience that changed my life. His name is Yingangan. That's him right there, and that's his wife. They're in a place called Irian Jaya, which was known as the ends of the earth, because it was so remote that they thought they were the only people on the face of the earth. And it was a, a culture where people practiced witchcraft and the, and the worship of demons. They had tribal warfare that was intense and part of life. They also practiced headhunting and cannibals. And that's where Yingangan was, and that's where I met him. But before I tell you about the story of Yingangan, let's have a little fun in how we got there. So, in Irianjaya, there's not a whole lot of roads. So if you want to get somewhere, you're going to walk for a very long time, or you're going to paddle a canoe up the river, or you're going to get in these little planes, little bitty ones. And those things, like, those things really fly. You look in the back, and you're expecting to see a squirrel where they poke them with a stick, so it would go like this with so the plane. Will, I mean, it's like, you know, something that you get out of Cracker Jacks, which is where you find little toys or something. But we got in there, and we went all over the place in Irianjaya. And typically, there's these little bitty airstrips. They're real skinny, and they're real short. And they're usually grass, or they're usually gravel kind of things. And so every time you set that thing down, you hit the bumps and humps, and the gravel goes everywhere. And you know, ah, anyway, that's how you do it. So we're going to start out this journey in the coastal, I mean, in the mountain highlands. And then we're going to finish in the coastal lowlands. So in the mountain highlands, you can't build an airstrip, because it needs to go like this, and mountains go like that. So here's what they do. They get a particular mountain and they carve a big slice on the side of it that's like this. And that's where you're going to land. Say, okay. And it's like really short because at the end of that is the mountain. So they got this airstrip there and we're approaching it. You can see it long ways out like that. And the pilot points to that little scar on the mountain and says, that's the airstrip. And, huh? You're kidding. It's like, that's short. Ah, no worries, we can do it. So he circles around the mountain, and you get closer and closer. Now you know for sure it's really short. And you see at the end of this thing that the mountain's right there. And so he tells us, okay, here's what you're gonna, we're going to do. We're going to put the wheels down right on the edge because we need as much runway as we can get, or else this thing is going to kiss that mountain and it's going to be a bad day. So I said, yeah, yeah, put it down. But wait a minute, don't put it down too soon because that's 1,000 feet down. We missed the front. It's going to be a really bad day. So he brings that thing in, tail down, nose up, flaps, and the rest. He hits it right on the edge. And then he starts to hit the brakes. And the gravel's going everywhere, and the chickens are going everywhere, and there's dust everywhere. And I'm hanging on saying, oh, Lord. 
and the mountain is coming closer and closer and closer. And he stopped that plane so close to that mountain that if I was up by where the propeller was, I could touch the mountain. Oh, thank you, Jesus. So he said, everybody out, go to the back. Well, that meant three plus him because there's only four seats in the plane. So all four of us got out, went to the back, grabbed the back end of the plane, turned it around so that the tail is towards the mountain and the nose is towards the cliff. That's how you get out of there. So we went and did what we did for a couple of days and we came back and uh, he put me in the front seat and we got in there and he revved up the uh, motor and I looked through the windshield and I said, oh, that's short. It's like the cliff is right there. So he revved it and we started going. Thing is rolling and it rolls slow. It's, it's like it hasn't had its coffee in a long time. It's just sort of, I'm thinking, oh, it's short, it's short. He runs it a little more, pick up a little speed, but not enough. That thing gets closer and closer and closer, and we got right to the edge, and we didn't make it. The wheel went off the edge, the nose pointed down, and that plane started to fall. Well, at that point, I started confessing everything I'd ever done. <laughs> I confessed everything I thought about doing, and I confessed everything that I think you might have done, just to be sure. I thought, oh, Lord, we're coming home. So the thing, and he pulls back on the stick and he goes, we're saved. He looked at me and said, we do this every day. I said, why didn't you tell me? And he looked at me, very matter of fact, and said, you wouldn't have gotten in. I said, you're right. I would not have gotten in. I would have walked home. So that's how we got where we're going. Let's go back to Yingang in here. Because the reason I went out there is the guy who leads our ministry out there in Southeast Asia said, this guy was at the beginning of a move of the Spirit of God that drove out the darkness and brought in the light and almost everybody in his area came to saving faith even though they were headhunters and cannibals and idol worshipers and all the rest of that. Next one. And I said, we're going to go talk to him. So we got to him, and we sat down in that pig pen right there. And he started telling me this story. He said, for ages past, here where we thought we were the only people on the earth, we heard a legend, and it was passed from father to son in the fire, around the fire at night. And the legend was, someday the words of life are going to come through people who have faces like the clouds. Okay, well, who is that? Well, it was the missionaries that God had put it in their heart to go to the ends of the earth, to people who had never heard. They made their way in, they earned relationship, and they began to share the words of life. And Yingongan, as a teenager, would sit at the back and listen every night as they were sharing. And he was so intrigued by this that he got some of his friends, teenagers, together. And he said, we, we have to go up to the top of the mountain. We've got to talk about the words of life. So the day came, and they put all their stuff together. It's like a camping trip. They climb up to the top of the mountain. They get up there. They get in a circle. And, and there came the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And tongues of fire appeared on their heads. And they began to speak in languages that they didn't understand. I am awestruck. I am sitting in that pig pen, listening to a first-hand account of how God chose to repeat the miracle of Pentecost. 
and how the light came in and drove out the darkness where almost everybody came to saving faith in Jesus. They laid down their weapons. They burned their fetishes. They turned away from their idols. They stopped warfare and they began to follow Jesus. I was overwhelmed. The privilege of a lifetime to hear this firsthand from somebody experiencing that was just overwhelming. I thought to myself, two things here. I'm going to tell everybody who will listen what God was doing in Arian Jaya through Yingongan and these others. And someday I'm going to come back and visit him again. Well, many years go by. I decided to go back. You got to want to go back. It took me 44 hours and I crossed 16 time zones. You got to get out to the serious boonies. We got out there and I sought out Yingongan. I said, Yingongan, how's it going? And his face fell in sadness. And he looked off in the distance and he got real quiet. Then he looked back at me and he said, Harry, the young people don't follow Jesus. What? This is the place where light drove out the darkness and all of that evil was set aside. He said they've gone back to witchcraft. They've gone back to idol worship. They've gone back to warfare. Now I hear them talking around the fire about what would it be like to kill somebody and eat them. I was shocked. I said, Yingongan, what happened? And the words that he spoke put a scar on my soul and they changed my life. He said, we did not disciple our children. And he turned and he walked away and I've never seen him again. And the principle, light only wins when it's present. They didn't pass it on. And the fact that they were there shining isn't the same as passing it on to others. And the light only wins when it's present. And it was no longer present. And the darkness came back. Let me take you to the third principle about light. And it comes in a lesson I learned in Las Vegas which is not typically the place you go for spiritual inspiration. <laughs> in the United States, we call it Sin City. And it's a well-earned reputation. But our, our kids, when they were little, and this is a long time ago, because now they're 41 and 39, but one of them was in, both of them were in gymnastics. And they had a, a uh, meet there. And so we wound up in Las Vegas, of all places. And we stayed in the Luxor Hotel. There it is. And it's in the shape of an Egyptian pyramid. So you get inside there and you're going to go to your room. The elevator goes like this. And there's a canal with Egyptian boats that'll take you around. To the, it's, it's crazy. But out of the peak of that pyramid is the world's biggest laser. Uh, if you're in Los Angeles, which is 270 miles away, you can see that thing at night. That's how bright that is. But here's the point. That giant size, biggest in the world light, was doing nothing to light up the darkness in the corners of Sin City. This is why that Jesus looked in the eyes of his disciples and said, it is to your benefit I go away. <laughs> no, no it's not. That's a bad idea. Boss, you've got a lot of good ideas, you've been doing good work. We're with you. But that right there, that's a bad idea because who's going to deal with those cranky Pharisees and who's going to do the fish and bread thing? So let's just put that aside. That's a bad idea. It's not a good thing for you to go away. No, Jesus said, it's to your benefit I go away. Why is that? 
because he knew that one big light, and he's the only one that qualifies, in the center would do nothing to dispel the darkness that's out there in the corners. So that educates us, and what we learn from that is it is not the size of your fire. It's the number of fires you start. Now why is that? We all love things that are big. It's very impressive when somebody's got a really big fire. I got the biggest building. I got the biggest budget. We got the biggest numbers. It's all big and beautiful. And everybody says, whoa. That's great. As far as it goes, that's the problem. It doesn't go far enough. What about over there in that corner of Darden? What, what, what about, what, what about? It's not one big fire in the middle and I'm not knocking big churches. But it's how many fires you start. You know why? Because each one of those fires has infinite capacity to grow as long as you teach folks how to feed it. So yeah, you can get that spark going over there and over here and over there and it becomes naturally a giant-sized fire as people are feeding it there. But we can't be satisfied with one big light in the center. Okay, so now we're going to go to what is a fundamental principle for us that we learn through this process, and that's the only way to complete the Great Commission is ordinary people multiplying disciples in their natural networks. That's the only way. For generations, God's people have been pursuing other things, and they're well-intended, and they're good, and they produce some results, but they can't finish the job. The only way to get the Great Commission done is when ordinary people are multiplying disciples in their natural networks. There's a couple of reasons for this that I'm going to illustrate in the next picture, which is God's interconnected network. This is a picture, a screenshot, of how Facebook uh, demonstrates who's connected at any second. It constantly changes, and everybody's all interconnected all over everywhere. And it's sort of a, a snapshot of how God organized the world. And what this does is it teaches us about what the meaning of viral is when we're talking about the gospel. We all know what viral means in terms of your cat video got to China tomorrow. We all know what it means in terms of COVID and so forth. What does it mean in terms of the gospel? What it means is when it leaves you, it doesn't stay like you. Because everybody knows somebody you don't. And as you connect with them and that light passes to them, it can pass to others that you'll never meet. And God organized the world that way. We have incredible diversity by God's design. And by the way, it will be eternal. When you read Revelation, what does it say? Every nation, tribe, and tongue, which is quintessential diversity. It's going to be there forever. And God said, we're not trying to homogenize it and make it all look alike. What we're trying to do is make sure that everything gets connected to everything else so that everybody can be part of that great throng before the throne. So the idea here that God put in place is because everything is all connected, he could look into the eyes of 11 homogeneous, disenfranchised, ragtag Jews and tell them and mean it, I want you to go everywhere and I want you to win everyone, and I want you to do it with nothing. Huh? That cannot seem like a good idea. These guys 
are outcasts from their own religion, Judaism. They're certainly outcasts in the Roman Empire. They don't have any transportation, don't have any resources, don't even have a leader at this point. So how are they supposed to get this job done? Well, what does the story tell us? Acts starts to roll and think of it like a moving picture. What do you see as these scenes come up? The gospel is in Herod's household, that's Jewish royalty. The gospel is in Caesar's household, that's the epicenter of the empire that's ruling the world. The gospel has gotten to the Praetorian Guard, which is military elite. The gospel got out to Ephesus and Corinth where they worship idols, but they also have commerce where people interact with each other. Then you hear words like, all Asia has heard the gospel and you hear the world got turned upside down. How does that happen? Ordinary people multiplying disciples in their natural networks is the answer. And it is the only answer. That is the only possible way that this could take place. But that's what God designed. And so that's why it works. So here's number four. The principle is that light that is shared. Okay, this one lights that one. It's doubled not diminished. This one didn't lose anything by sharing with that one, but the net effect is that the power and the light are doubled. That may be seem like a simple thing, but that is an incredibly powerful principle. We've all seen the illustrations where you're in a dark stadium or something like that and there's one lone candle and that person shares it with their neighbor and that person shares it with someone else and so it goes until all lights are lit and the darkness is caused to flee, right? That's exactly what God intended. He wants us to share and we don't have to um, lose in the bargain. I'm gonna try to put this in real life and tell you some stories of what God is doing on the ground to illustrate it. The first one comes out of Rwanda. You're gonna see up here this chain Rwanda, 13 generations in two years. It starts over here with Justin, who's a frustrated pastor, faithful in his service, but nothing's happening. It just is stuck. He's crying out to God and saying, oh God, what am I gonna do? This is not what I wanna see happen. I wanna see things go forward for you. I wanna see them to grow. So Justin, we came across him and we introduced to something we call Discovery Bible Study. And the idea, is that you're gonna be praying that the Father is drawing people. You're gonna be praying to break the strongholds. You're gonna be praying that you will bind the strong man so he can't hold them back and be praying so that the eyes will be open because the God of this world blinds the mind. And against that backdrop, Justin is gonna ask four questions. What does that scripture say? What does it mean? What are you gonna do? And who can you share that with? That's not rocket science. And Justin, as a trained pastor, that's a little on the simplistic side, isn't it? Said, well, give it, a, give it a go. So Justin shared that with Jean-Paul, his handyman. That right there is a cultural gap. But Jean-Paul responded. He had ears to hear, and the father had been drawing him. And Justin did what was essential. He said, Jean-Paul, you have to share it in your natural network. So it wasn't Justin, the pastor, who ran over here. Let me talk to your network. Let, let me make sure that I can have everybody else understand. No, Jean-Paul, you need to talk to your network. This isn't rocket science. You can do it. So Jean-Paul did. And look at that. He talked to Augustine, who was a friend. 
Then Pascal, who was a drunk construction worker and was really hindering his family because the money was going to booze and not to food. But he was receptive, and so he received it. And you look down at the top there, six churches with three generations at the point that I made the slide. Came from that drunken construction worker. Do you think those people were coming to Justin's church? I don't think so. I think what happened is people were passing it on in their natural network and it was taking it places that Justin couldn't go. So let's keep going there. Eugenia, she's a widow. She passed it on to Olivi, who's the atheist. And look there, the atheist at the point of the slide was responsible for 10 churches that had three generations of multiplication in it. You keep following around. Geraldine is a pygmy. In, in that society, the pygmies are kicked around by everybody. They're the short folks, so I identify with them. Say, everybody pick on me. But the pygmies have no stas status. But Geraldine talked to this one. Gerald, I mean, all of you talked to Geraldine, a pygmy, and she was receptive, and she passed it on to a, a person who made the bicycle taxi go. And on it goes, the bicycle taxi person responsible for 30 churches, then a pastor from a different denomination. It, he received it in eight churches, five generations, and on it goes. That's just the power of ordinary people multiplying disciples in their natural network. The only one with any training was the first one and the Samson one, the Adventist pastor. Let me give you another illustration. Country of Sierra Leone. We went there uh, with five pastors from the United States. One was from Los Angeles, one from Detroit, one from Connecticut, etc., and then one from Tennessee. The one from Tennessee had a mega church. They've got five campuses. They have X thousands of people. They've got the TV show. They've written the book, all that kind of stuff. Very successful. So we took them out there to this place that's way away from everything because they wanted to see Discovery Bible Study. And this is a church that has a tin roof and no sides and has grown in about two years to 200 people. And we showed up and said, folks, we want to do Discovery Bible Study. And these folks want to see you do it. So everybody opened up the scripture. We gave them a passage. They all looked in there and says, yep, this is what it says. This is what it means to me. This is what I'm going to do before you see me again. And here's who I'm going to tell before you see me again. And they did that person after person after person after person because it was the DNA that was at the birth of this church. So they all did it naturally. All these pastors looked at each other and just, we never seen anything like that. The mega church guy who was sitting next to me was sitting next to another guy named Dan who was an elder in his church and he gave him the elbow. Bam! Dan, we're going to do this at our church. I'm going to quit that church and I'm going to do it myself. I'm not going to die and stand in front of Jesus. Got nobody standing with me. So then I, I got the African leader and said, get these people organized into generations. Who came to faith first? Who did they influence and so on? Ten minutes of fooling around. They got it all figured out. You're looking at 11 generations that produced 200 followers of Jesus in two years through ordinary people multiplying disciples in their natural networks. So here's what I want you to take away from this. It's not just about shining. It's about igniting. God said, it's his command, let your light shine. Yes, you should be shining. But you also shouldn't stop there. It's about igniting. And igniting takes intentional engagement.
to make it true. You can shine here. You can be a lighthouse. But God also wants you to be search and rescue. That's intentional engagement. And here's something we need to deal with that is one of these things that we just get used to when you stop thinking about it. It's the term reached. And all Christians around the world use it. Yeah, we reached so many people. We sent a short-term team, team, team out there and they reached 1,000 people. We got a radio station over here that reaches 10 million because it's got the big wattage or the whatever. Okay, what does that mean? We reached them? Does that mean they were exposed? Does that mean they understood? Does that mean they said yes? Does that mean their lives were changed? Does it mean they... What does it mean? We don't know, but we let each other say it. And by the way, I say it, so... There's no condemnation in that. It's just a call to say, let's think about what we're talking about because reached usually means some kind of exposure. It doesn't necessarily mean some kind of engagement where that light is going to be transferred. So now we're going to take a little time out here to do a math quiz. I'm sure you're excited. You came to church today thinking, if I could only have a math quiz, I'd feel so good when I left. All right, here it is. The question for you, if there was only 100 followers of Jesus, something close to what we have right here, 100 followers of Jesus who said, I will obey, I will make one disciple in one year, and then I will make sure that they repeat the process. So if you get that going, year one, you got 100, right? Year two, you got 200. Year three, you got 400. Then in the year after that, 800 and so forth. Okay, that's how... This would go. So here's your question. Math problem. Get ready. How long would it take for you, with that mechanism, to see 7 billion followers of Jesus? Hmm. 26 years. 26 years. Second year, so 200. Well, that's nice, but that's really not a lot. Next year, 400. Well, that's better, but wow, it's a drop in the bucket. Even 800, whatever. Go home and do it. You can do it on a piece of paper. Just double it. You could do it on Excel. 100, us, saying I'm going to make one disciple in one year can bring 7 billion into the kingdom if we make sure that they repeat the process without us. So, when Jesus said to those people who were listening to him, here's the last thing I'm going to tell you because it's the most important thing you're ever going to hear. Go everywhere, make disciples, teach them to obey everything. That's it. What that means is the Great Commission was actually practically possible because Jesus understood this math. He knew that if his people would obey, this result would happen. So why aren't we there? After 2,000 years, and all whatever bazillions of dollars we put into it, well, because the vast majority of people who claim the name of Christ do not obey the command of Christ. It's not just about shining, it's about igniting. So principle number five. Light has a lifespan. That means as soon as this one shares its light with that one, the clock is ticking. There will be an end. And at the end, opportunity is over. That means don't waste time. 
Don't put it off. Don't wait until you think you're ready. Don't wait until somebody tells you you should do it. Because all the time that's lost can never be regained. No, we're all starting where we are. Paul's very clear. Forget what lies behind. Don't get all caught up in a guilt complex of what you coulda, woulda, shoulda. Instead, look forward and make sure going forward you consistently do what he asked you to do, which is to share that light. I got what I call a pants-down spanking out of a, a time in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. And that pants-down spanking left the mark. I don't think you want to see it, but it was a big ouch. Here's a paraphrase of what Jesus said in those two chapters. This is a CEO discussion. Jesus spoke to his people and said, well done. This is good. Then he made a transition. And he said, but I have this against you. Oof. You've left some things undone and you've done some things wrong. I'm going to give you time to fix this. And if you don't, there will be consequences. That's what CEOs do. Well, here's the confession. I've been in ministry for 48 years and a big block of time where I was trying to get a free pass on all the good things that had happened. And they are good. They're worthy. They produce results. Yes. But what about the things that were left undone and the things that were wrong? I couldn't just get a free pass based on this for all of this. And the Lord got my attention over that because that's what he wants for all of us. He wants to affirm the good that we're doing, but he also wants us to get on with what we've left undone and fix anything that's wrong. So we're going to go to a final point here. And it's about a song that I learned as a kid. Growing up in America, if you were in the church, all the little kids were taught to sing, This Little Light of Mine. I don't know, you probably never heard of it. But anyway, it's a great kid song. This little light of mine, all the kids put their finger up. I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Shine all over the neighborhood. Let it shine till Jesus come. I'm going to let it shine. And that's good. And I'm glad those kids learned it. But I thought about that and I thought, you know what? That's leaving something out. This little light of mine wasn't the full story. So I rewrote the song. It's uh, not like it's any great work of art. Uh, you probably will not find it on YouTube or the top 10, if anything, but here we go. This little light of mine, I'm going to pass it on every day, every way, all the time. I'm going to spread it in my family. I'm going to spread it in my neighborhood. I'm going to spread it through my whole network. I'm going to pass it on. I'm going to teach them all to do the same. This is what he asks of me. This is my priority. This is my identity. I'm going to pass it on every day, every way, all the time. I'm not, I won't let Satan hold me back. I won't give in to his attack. When he pushes, I'm going to push right back. I'm going to pass it on every day, every way, all the time. Pass it on my whole life long. Pass it on until I'm gone. Pass it on until the Lord returns. Every day, every way, all the time. It's a kid's song. But isn't it a big deal what we tell our kids? 
what we teach our kids, what they're going to sing about, what they're going to have embedded inside of them? Shouldn't it be a DNA of not just shining, but of passing it on? And shouldn't that be true with everybody who comes to faith through your ministry? That right from the beginning, they learn that little kid's song, at least at the heart level. I'm going to pass it on. What God has done is said, you're not saved from something, you're saved for something. And what you are saved for is to bring the kingdom of God into your circle of influence. That's the plan that he put in place. And these five principles about light, I hope you can take with you. Light and darkness are not opposite equals. Light always wins. Light only wins when it's present. One big light in the center doesn't drive out the darkness in the corners. Light that is shared is doubled, not diminished. And light has a lifespan. Once the candle is lit, the clock is ticking. I hope that these things will find fertile ground in your hearts, that they will help you in your journey with Jesus. Amen.